Good morning. If you would turn to your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then when I was much afraid, I said to the king, It's nothing but sadness. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my, not my face be sad when the city, the place of my fathers, graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and that he may give me timber to make beams for gates, the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for a house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Well, if you would, turn to Nehemiah, and if you have just joined us, or this is your first Sunday with us, we are moving through this Old Testament book, Nehemiah. Years ago, when I was at college, when dinosaurs were still roaming the earth, uh, I worked in the library for four years, and I know, what a geeky job, but I loved it. It was great. Uh, you always were sh sure to make you for the first to check out books for a research paper. The rest of the students, they missed out so bad. You know, that's what the benefit of working in the library, right? And you would often get strange requests. I remember you wrote a few down. Who wrote Dante's Inferno? I'm looking for a book I used last week. Can you help me find it? It was blue. <laughs> These are college students. <laughs> yes. Do you have Shakespeare in English? No, just pig Latin. Sorry. Right. <clears throat> the library doesn't have the book I need. I need to order this through interplanetarian loan thingies. You mean interlibrary loan? Yeah, okay. And then this one, I love this. It said, I'm looking for a particular book. And I said, well, what is its call number? And the person responded, I know what it's called. Just tell me where it is, right? <laughs> Nehemiah is going to raise three requests from the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Unlike some of those questions that I received at the library, Nehemiah's was well-informed, very calculated and God-honoring. And I want you to watch that as we go through the text. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. This account that occurred many, many years before I was even in college, <laughs> before Christ came on the scene, you were orchestrating the events. And as you promised to the Israelites, after 70 years of exile, they would be brought back to their land. 
First the temple's restored, and now we're at a phase here with Nehemiah where it's an issue about the walls. Father, guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for these stories that are true and relevant and applicable because it is God-breathed. It is your word that has been given graciously to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in chapter 2, and again, the scene is, remember, the Jews were taken into exile under the Babylonian Empire. 586, the temple is destroyed. It's the last of the deportations. The Babylonians would take people groups in one region and settle them over here. They wanted to destabilize the region for control purposes. Well, as we know, the Babylonians were surprisingly defeated by the Persians in a magnificent story, which I wish we had time to tell, but the Persians take charge, and their philosophy of their foreign policy was vastly different than Babylonians. They wanted the locals to return. They even encouraged the worship within those local regions, and that's what we saw with the return of the first 42,000 Jews and the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel, and Ezra was there during that time frame, and that's the book of Ezra, Nehemiah is recounting the rebuilding of the walls. And Nehemiah, as we're told at the end of chapter 1, he was a cupbearer for the king. And we'll talk about why that's significant in a minute. Remember when the news was delivered, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's the month of Kislev. This is around December. We're now moving into March, April. It's four months later in the month of Nisan. And the 20th year, the text tells us chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1 of King Artaxerxes. When it says, wine was brought to me, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Previously, I had not been depressed, he tells us. So, we, first of all, we see this time frame in its key. And one of the questions you should immediately ask is, why did Nehemiah wait four months? If he was so disheartened over the news, as he tells us, why didn't you immediately say, hey, uh, Artie, I need to talk to you, right? King Artie, let's, let's deal with this. I, I, we, we need to do something about Jerusalem. And he waits four months. Nisan was the beginning of the calendar year for the Persians. It was a time when gifts were given. It was expected during this time frame that the Persian king would give the request or give what people request of him. Nehemiah is very clever. He knew exactly when to approach the king. And it's this time frame in which he goes. Very significant. And we're going to see this as we move through the text. Uh, this wasn't written in a vacuum. These are real people addressed in real times. And just as Paul on his missionary journeys understood his culture and, and who he was dealing with, Nehemiah will also, and you'll see that here as we move through the time frame. Well, we're told, as we've stated, he was the cupbearer. He's the one who tested the wine. Unless it was poisonous, he'd die, the king would be saved. Uh, a bummer of a job if it's poisoned, right? Uh, this, this term is used 12 times, but what do we know about cupbearers? in the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. They were well-trained in court etiquette. Nehemiah would have been polylingual because he would have been, spoke his native tongue. He would have spoke the language of the day, most likely. Very well-educated. Most cupbearers, as we understand from ancient writings, were uh, handsome, good-looking. 
He was well-versed, obviously, in wine. In fact, later Jewish writing, the Talmud says, the wine belongs to the master, but credit is due to his cupbearer. <laughs> so he knew which wines to pull off the shelf and when to serve it. He was expected as the cupbearer to lend a willing ear. He was there to provide a, a confidant for the king. He was a safe haven for the king. Keep that in mind. He would also guard who would come see the king as cupbearer, which is a little surprising, but kind of a head uh, butler, so to speak. He enjoyed unreserved confidence in the king. And this is interesting. The Persian court required that any staff member who was around the king was to be pleasant and in good spirits. Put on a happy face. That's not the case here, is it? In fact, the text tells us twice he's depressed. Third time, it says he has a sad face. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3. Uh, verse 1, excuse me, and verse 2. It says he's depressed. Verse 2, the king even says, Why do you appear depressed? Are you, you aren't sick, because you wouldn't be serving, tasting my wine if you had uh, COVID, right? You're not drinking out of my cup. So you're healthy, you're here, but you look like death warmed over. What's, what's going on, right? And, and why can this, the other, he says here, be other than your sadness of heart? Such a gloomy countenance could be interpreted, careful, watch this, could be seen as plotting against the king. This is very dangerous grounds Nehemiah is on. We miss this when we read through this text and don't understand the culture. It's conveying a bad heart. And in Persian empire, a bad or sad heart was considered someone who had an impure motive. You say, well, why is that so significant? Because if we know Persian history, Artaxerxes' daddy was assassinated by his closest confidant, a, a court, uh, servant in the courts. And that same servant who killed his dad tried to kill Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes has to be a little paranoid, don't you think? I, I would think. You know, and, and when Nehemiah's countenance isn't resonating, I mean, there's, high, there's flags going all over the place. Because Artaxerxes is going, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't trust you, right? What's, what's going on here? What's happening? And, and so we see this. And if you, if you don't think that this isn't alarming, look what Nehemiah says. He said, this made me what? Very fearful. That phrase is only used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used of Abram in Genesis 15 when he encounters the Lord. And it says he was scared spitless. Nehemiah is got to be shaking in his boots. I can just see the cup of wine like this, right? You know, hold it still. Because uh, Nehemiah, uh, Artaxerxes could have him immediately removed and executed. Nehemiah gives two reasons for his sadness. See this in verse three. He says, O king, live forever. My loyalty's there, right? He's reiterating this. I'm here for you, my dear king. Why would I not be dejected in appearance when the city with the graves of my ancestors lies desolate and its gates destroyed by fire? He gives two reasons for the not-so-happy face. The first of these is he says, the grave of my ancestors lays desolate. Now, here again, 
Nehemiah knows his audience. Why? He, he repeats this line. It's stated twice in the text. And you go, why? Why would he highlight that? Because in a Persian worldview, the afterlife was so important. And how you handled corpse was also extremely significant. They had elaborate burial system. And the idea that, that graves would be laid desolate or bodies would be laying desolate, that would be an abomination. And so what Nehemiah, I think he's doing, is trying to woo over the king. I know you'd understand how awful this is. Oh, Artie, <laughs> please understand. This, this is not a good situation back in Jerusalem. Again, he repeats it twice. He repeats it here in this verse and in the next verse. And he highlights, now, he doesn't talk about the walls. He talks about the gates and they're destroyed by, catch this, fire. Also very important in a Persian worldview. Again, we're not dealing <laughs> something out of, a, out of a bubble of history. Nehemiah is a product of his time. He understands the worldview of a Persian empire, Persian people, and that fire was considered unholy for the Persians. It was reserved solely for the temple. In fact, to bury someone or to take the corpse and burn it would be worse than death itself. There's recordings of Persian uh, aristocrats begging that their body not be burned after they die. Please bury me. The, the thought of fire destroying something, again, was, was unheard of. And so Nehemiah, as he comes to the king, he, he goes for the heart, doesn't he, with Artaxerxes. He said, one, you know, you understand about death, Artaxerxes, and it's awful what's happened to my ancestors. Secondly, the fire has destroyed the gates, and you know how awful that is. And in a Persian worldview, an ideal kingdom was a stable government. Corpse lying around, gates destroyed by fire was not good for a kingdom, for stability, and certainly for the overall Persian empire. Nehemiah knew all of this. What do you think he's been doing for four months? Going through the Kleenex boxes? No, he's certainly been doing that, but there's far more significant. He has been weighing this over and over. I can just, he's been rehearsing exactly what he's gonna say to the king. And, and that's what you see here. As we engage a world with the gospel, we have got to know our audience, don't we? Look at one of my favorite texts is Acts 17, where Paul encounters those Athenians. He even quotes their own philosopher in the process and, and ties it into the gospel, ties it into general revelation and special revelation. Notice what Nehemiah says and what he doesn't say. Nehemiah doesn't explain away his appearance. He doesn't apologize, which again, in that culture, it was expected. Secondly, Nehemiah doesn't downplay the seriousness of the situation or shy away from the truth, the reality of it, as he encounters this king. Nehemiah makes it personal, not political. This is key. One commentator writes, Nehemiah, like Esther, had the wisdom to present the matter first as news of a personal blow, not a political issue. 
Think about this as we talk about the gospel, right? And how do we, there's nothing more powerful than sharing a personal testimony of what God has done. Rather than just going at it with the bazooka to deal with some political issue, start with the heart. <laughs> and Nehemiah does show respect to the king, doesn't he? Oh, king, who may you live forever. He's careful not to overstep his role. I mean, he has waited for Artaxerxes to approach him. He didn't approach Artaxerxes. Now, some scholars state he purposely looked depressed so the king would ask at this time frame. That's viable. He, but he ultimately, he trusts the Lord. And, and you see that in his conversation we'll, we'll get to in a moment. He cannot undermine Artaxerxes' trust because he's going to depend on that heavily. Nehemiah needs to let the king know, I'm behind you 100%, but I need to go do this. And so, careful, it's calculated. And so the king asks a second question. Notice what he says here in the text in verse 4. He responds, what is it you are seeking? Hmm. All Nehemiah done has laid out the problem. But the king is wise enough to know, well, what do you propose, right? What are you thinking, little Nehemiah? And notice what Nehemiah does. I love this. It should be our response every time, right? It says, when I quickly prayed to the God of heaven, I said to the king. Isn't that great? It's like, oh, Lord, <laughs> if any time that I need to have eloquent a speech, it's now. Give me the wisdom to speak. That's a loaded phrase, isn't it? I wrote down, Nehemiah knew to whom he was praying, the God of heaven. We saw that in chapter one. You, O God, who sits above the, all the kings of this earth, Artaxerxes is nothing to you. You're the one who sees all things. And so, Lord, I pray to you. He prays quickly. I mean, again, he's been rehearsing this for four months. When temptation arises, think about this. We're often, aren't we anxious to respond properly or we're if we're placed in a position that's delicate, we can't lose sight of the importance of a quick prayer. And he prays before answering the king. <laughs> His natural response was established through discipline and a proper theology. When I see people not praying for a meal, you know, it's not been ingrained. It's just not thought through this. Prayer does not hinder a man's journey, Charles Spurgeon wrote. If you're familiar with the mercy seat, you will constantly visit it. Isn't that great? We would be well to remind ourselves in engagement with people that we should pray for first before speaking. <laughs> Trust me, I can, a couple weeks ago, speaking to a couple, it would have been much better had I prayed first. I got myself in serious trouble and thinking, I need to pray I wrote down, being on our knees in prayer helps keep us from putting our foot in our mouth, <laughs> right? That's where we need to be. And, and there's one more thing about this. These, this is a memoir. We talked about this. The book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's recounting of what happened. It's his memoirs. He never forgot this prayer. Think about that. There are many prayers that I've made to the Lord that I'll never remember, but there are those times, specific times, when I've prayed and remembered specifically where I was, what time of the day it was, and why I prayed. And that may be you. And often those are stones that we need to put as stones of remembrance. 
These are the times when we've seen God work in a very powerful way. My cousin in sixth grade, we were classmates at school. She had to leave the room. Later, they were doing a very serious brain surgery with a vascular malformation of her brain. It was a difficult time. And I remember the church gathering and praying through the night for her. Remember that. And Nehemiah, (laughs) he'll not forget this. Never. It took him four months to get up the courage to say all this, right? And so he says, oh God. And then he makes, and here comes the request. And I I love this. He's he's thought through this. This isn't just willy-nilly. Look what he says here. He says, well, he says, then the king, when he said, how long will you take this trip? That's the first thing here that's, that's being highlighted. Before you do all this, what is it that you want? And he says, well, the first request is that I need to go. I need to rebuild the city. Verse 5, if the king is so inclined and if your servant has found favor in your sight, dispatch me to Judah, to the city with the graves, there it is again, so that I can rebuild it. Notice he never says Jerusalem. That's also key. We'll get to this. Well, in fact, we can talk about this because the first reason, the thought of first request of going back it takes great risk. Why? Because according to Ezra 4, Artaxerxes, same king, there was a problem back in Jerusalem. The, the Jews started rebuilding the walls and the local yokels, those around, particularly the Samaritans, said, no, 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 you're not rebuilding that wall. And so they wrote to the Persian king and said, hey, the, the Jews are trying to rebel. They're trying to fortify a city. And Artaxerxes said, stop it now. The edict was given in Ezra 4. Nehemiah knows about that edict. I can assure you. That's part of the fear and trembling because he's going to ask Artaxerxes to revoke a decree that he'd given previously back in Ezra 4. And so that's the first, this request that he asked to go rebuild the city. It, It takes great risk. And again, he doesn't mention, I think that's why he doesn't mention Jerusalem hoping that Artaxerxes' memory isn't jogged to an event that occurred in the past. But it also takes great sacrifice. I mean, think about this. Nehemiah is eating baklava and drinking the best wine in the world. He's in the greatest kingdom of the day, serving in the palace. I mean, he's whining and dining. This is awesome. And he's going to go to a place that's a wreck? He knows about the disarray back in Jerusalem. And it's been over a century. I mean, he wasn't born and raised in Jerusalem. Let someone else go. No, no, no. He says, I'll go. He says, Nehemiah, let me go. And again, the, the verse that I love is verse six. It's, it's kind of a side note. It says, then the king with his consort, consort, this is the queen, right? Is sitting behind him. And that's when Artaxerxes says, how long will your trip take? Now, I'm gonna preach from the white space just briefly. This isn't thus saith the Lord. But I think the queen is going, <clears throat> right? She's clearing her throat. She's saying, what are you doing? Artaxerxes. <laughs> Nehemiah is the best worker we've ever had. You got to be kidding. So you better find out how long he's going to be gone. I don't know. I may be reading into the text. Who knows? Maybe she's clearing her throat to say, Nehemiah needs to go. Let him go. Right? Who knows? Regardless, Nehemiah has already figured out how long it's going to take to build the walls. That's amazing. In fact, we're told later it only took 52 days. So, and we're going to find out later as we study the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah will return to Artaxerxes. 
So he keeps his word, but he's thought through the time frame, and he says, this is what I need, and the time frame in order to go rebuild the walls. Now look at verse 7. Here's the second request. Then I said to the king, I mean, so king, if you're so inclined, let me, let you give me some, you know, let him give me letters. In other words, write some documents to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. This is that region that included Samaria, Judah, the Ammonite countries, all this region uh, there, he says, which would have been modern Israel, Jordan, and that part of the world. He says, hey, you know, give me some letters that will enable me to travel safely until I reach Judah. Not only has Nehemiah thought of the time frame, but he also knows I'm walking into a hornet's nest. Because back in Ezra 4, when Artaxerxes made his decree, we know that the local yokels were adamantly opposed to the Jews building a wall. And we're going to encounter that. In fact, what we're going to see on a map here shortly uh, in the next few weeks is Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies. <laughs> And they're even within the camp, but they are surrounded. And Nehemiah knew all of this. He knew he needed some clout. I mean, who's going to trust? He's a cupbearer. You know, who are you, Nehemiah, to come here and tell us what we're going to do and not do? And so he needed the letters. And he asked for one more thing. Now, this is where you have chutzpah. Watch this, all right? And he says, in a letter for Asaph, he says, and you enabled me to travel safely. And I need a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's natural preserve, verse 9, so that he will give me timber for beams for the gates of the fortress adjacent to the temple, the wall, and a home for which I will go, making it very personal. Can you imagine an employee saying to you, if you were an employer, saying, hey, uh, I need about three months off. And by the way, I need you also to write a check to pay for my vacation in Hawaii. <laughs> right. You know what? You're also fired, right? Nehemiah not only asked for time off, he's asking for the king to provide the resources. And again, Nehemiah has thought through this because he knows what resources he needs to, to do to the issues with the temple, the wall, and a house. And what I love, it's a pagan king of a pagan empire giving his own resources to support the Lord's work. Isn't that great? Only the Lord. Only the Lord in that. Notice how this closes in verse 8. After he's made the third request, the king says he granted me these provisions. For, and I love this line, the good hand of my God was on me. It's the same phrase used in Ezra 7. Both Ezra and Nehemiah recognize the miraculous provision of God. There is no human explanation viable. What Persian king is going to allow a cupbearer? This is why some scholars try to poo-poo this book and say, well, it's historically inaccurate. They used to say Artaxerxes didn't exist. That was a bummer when they found inscriptions of him and coins that he minted. So then they tried to discredit some other issues such as, well, no, Artaxerxes would have never allowed a city to fortify itself until we realized that the Egyptians tried to invade Persia, and that's why Artaxerxes was, was fortifying the cities. And who would, have, but who would have thought of this? As aptly observed by one commentator, what appears at one level to be the bountiful great grant of the Persian king turns out to be merely a channel 
through where the bounty of the King of Kings reaches his people. I love what Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, Trusting God. No plan of God's can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. Such a bare, unqualified statement of the sovereignty of God would terrify us if that we were all if we didn't know God, but we know God. He is the one who's sovereign, his perfect in his love and infinite in his wisdom. In other words, the decrees of God are the eternal plans of God, whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. That's why David wrote in Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, in that same psalm, it says, Lord, you knew me before I was formed in the womb. Wow. This is our God who, who has orchestrated events and he graciously works through human actions. There's some implications here because there's this tension, isn't there, between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. I'm not attempting to resolve that in a few minutes, but I, there's a few things I want to note. First, while God never does evil, and is never to be blamed for evil, he uses all things to fulfill his purpose for his glory. The exiles were needed. It was a paddle with holes in it <laughs> that God had to use on his people to say, you need to learn some lessons. And in that time frame, God brings them back as he has promised. And what was horrific, God used to refine and to bring his people back and to show that he is faithful to his promises to them. Secondly, we're responsible for all our actions. You can't blame God. In fact, James says you can't even blame Satan. There, there's no one to take blame but yourself. Third, our actions have real results and do change the course of human events. And this is where this tension lies, but James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Imagine if Nehemiah had said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have a little pity party for him, the fetal position over in the corner. I'm done. This is really sad. But if he never took the initiative, where would we be? Oh, God would have raised up another individual, but Nehemiah would have missed out. And we must engage. Second Samuel 10, Joab says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. You see that, that tension that's there? We, we work courageously, but we trust God and he will see forth to carry out his plan. It's what Paul said to the folks at Corinth. Well, it's actually what the Lord said to, to Paul in Corinth when, when Paul wanted to, to take stage right. The Lord says, do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking, for I have many in this city who are my people. He expected Paul to, to, to share the gospel. He expected to do this, and God was going to honor it. And that's what you see in Nehemiah, don't you? The, this tension that is there, but it's clear. I love William Cooper's work. God moves in a mysterious way. It's an old hymn. He wonders to perform, his, plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I don't know the journey you're facing this morning. Maybe it's the news of cancer. Maybe it's the thought of a, a wayward child. You say, I, I don't see God's hand in this. Trust, cling to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head, and you can. You can trust him. And that's what Nehemiah shows. In the midst of all this heartache, being exiled, losing their identity as a people, having to rebuild a temple that wasn't what it used to be, and the city laying in ruins with the walls. In all of this, I love it. The text says it. But God's hand was on Nehemiah. God is faithful. He is there. He keeps his word, even when nothing seems to make sense. Well, there are three principles there in your notes and to walk away from the text. First, faith is not a permit to forego careful thinking and planning. Again, let me just rehearse. Think about Nehemiah. Yes, he stepped out in great faith. But this wasn't some blind leap in the dark or, oh, just trust the Lord and hope it works out. No, 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 no. He had calculated the best time to approach Artaxerxes. He thought through what he was going to say and how to relate the facts. He knew how long it would take. He understood the potential danger and the steps that needed to be taken. He knew what supplies he needed and where to obtain them. And he knew what specific tasks needed to be accomplished when he arrived. It's what the Lord talked about in Luke chapter 14, that the one who builds a tower sits down and first calculate the cost. The disciples were encouraged to think through, or Proverbs 6, go to the ant, you sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. If Nehemiah had simply just trusted the Lord, he would never have known how to answer Artaxerxes concerning the time frame. He would have never anticipated the need for letters or knew how much materials were needed. It would have been a disaster but it was well calculated, thought through, but dependent on the Lord in all of it. Cruise control might be great for gas mileage, but it isn't great for the use of God-given brain cells, right? <laughs> we cannot cruise. In fact, Romans 12 is clear. We, we need to be very proactive, proactive in our thinking, proactive in our actions for the cause of Christ. Secondly, changing a heart, and this is, this is great this morning, because I know for some, this is what we need to hear again. Changing a heart is God's line of work. As noted by Chuck Swindoll, no matter how important the person, God is the one who decides the direction a heart will bend. So what does that mean? Pray, and pray often. <laughs> Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like channels of water, he turns it wherever he wants. Vladimir Putin, it's in the hand of the Lord. Joe Biden, hand of the Lord. That boss, that horrible boss you work with, hand of the Lord. A difficult co-worker, an unsaved spouse, a wayward child. I mean, it's easy just to want to throw in the towel. Nehemiah spent four months... And I can assure you, he prayed for, for Artaxerxes that entire time. 
Lord, work in his heart. May I find favor with him. It's one of the prayers that we pray for our kids. Lord, may they find favor with their teachers. May they find favor with those adults that they engage. And the good news is, ultimately, you are not responsible. (laughs) God is in the business of changing hearts. Isn't that great? (laughs) That's really good news. Ultimately, nothing is too difficult. They'll never change. Well, the Lord's in that business. Let him handle it. Ultimately, God's plan will not be thwarted. God is in the business of ensuring his will will be accomplished. And so, let me encourage you. The Lord gave us a template for prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer can be prayed over individuals who have depleted us of our energy and whom we're ready to write off. Turn them over to the Lord, right? That's what the Lord did with Nehemiah and Artaxerxes, I should say. And finally, failure to step out in faith eliminates the incredible opportunity to be used by the Lord. Nehemiah had four possible responses, four options. He could have done nothing and been quiet. He could have done nothing and complained. (laughs) We've met a few of those, right? He could have asked Artaxerxes to send someone else, or he could ask Artaxerxes and personally go. (laughs) In Victorious Christian Service, Alan Redpath writes, there's no battle anywhere in the spiritual sense until the Christian pitches in. There is no concern in the mind of Satan about the church at all until he sees a selfless Christian seeking only the glory of God, determined to challenge the satanic grip upon men's and women's hearts and and for the exaltation of the Lord's name. Psalm 5, all those who seek shelter in the Lord, who seek his glory, will be happy. May the Lord raise up more Nehemiahs, We need men and women who seek God's name to be glorified and who are willing to say, here am I, send me. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this text. More importantly, we thank you for the life of Nehemiah, a cupbearer who was willing to be used by you and and what a privilege and joy he had. Oh, it didn't come with some (laughs) frustration, some sweat, some consternation, some difficulties. We'll see that as we move through the book. But what an opportunity to say that your hand was graciously upon me, as Nehemiah stated. Lord, that's the longing of our hearts, that your name might be glorified. And in the process, we can say, no, all of this flows from your gracious hand. Well, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.